I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Jim Pullen. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, May 15th, 2012. Coming up, we'll hear from Dr. Marion Nessel, co-author of the new book, Why Calories Count, about the biology and politics of calories. And we'll talk with the founder of the Gold Lab Symposium about speaker Alan Jacobson, who has found a cure for some children suffering from muscular dystrophy. The Gold Lab Symposium is being held this weekend at CU Boulder. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Here's Brianna Draxler. Oil spills are a messy business, but a patent is in the works for a new cleanup solution, the carbon nanotube. Nanotubes are made out of sheets of carbon, one atom thick, which are rolled into tubes the size of baby carrots. Nanotubes are water repellent, but act as super efficient oil sponges. Each nanotube can absorb up to 100 times its weight in oil. And here's the kicker, the nanotubes are reusable. You can squeeze or burn the oil out of the sponges without inhibiting their ability to absorb more oil. This offers exciting possibilities for cleaning up oil spills, but thus far the testing has been limited to supercomputer simulations. Some oil cleanup methods, like the toxic dispersant used in the BP spill, persist in the environment and cause their own problems. But these tiny sponges are magnetic, which the scientists hope will make them easier to move and remove from the ocean. While nanotubes have been made for decades, scientists have struggled to control the nanotube's growth and dispersal. But scientists at the Department of Energy's Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Tennessee have recently added an essential twist. The scientists inserted boron atoms into the mix. Since boron has a different number of valence electrons, it changes the structure of the carbon-based lattice. The boron encouraged more elbow joints to form, creating a three-dimensional structure, which makes the nanotube stronger and more flexible, and more efficient at removing oil from ocean waters. The results of the study were published on Nature.com last week. For How on Earth, I'm Brianna Draxler. A team of researchers at the University of Colorado Boulder and Yale University have been developing a map of life. It's an internet-based project designed to show where all living plants and animals on the planet are located. And just how many species is that? Scientists estimate that number to be nearly 9 million on land and in the ocean. About 90% haven't even been discovered or categorized. The Map of Life database already contains hundreds of millions of records on the abundance and range of the Earth's diverse flora and fauna. And now you can get involved. The scientists just released the first public demonstration version of the Map of Life. It allows anyone to access the website, which is mappinglife.org, and map the known distribution of particular species you're interested in. Robert Goralnik, an associate professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at CU Boulder, who's part of the Map of Life team, said the information could help inform decisions by policymakers and organizations about conservation, climate change, land management, and public health. The Map of Life follows in the footsteps of other species databases, like the GenBank Project, which is a public database of more than 135 million gene sequences from more than 300,000 organisms. And there's also the Encyclopedia of Life, which is helping to fund the Map of Life. You've got mail. Do you check your email every few minutes? And if a new message arrives, do you interrupt what you are doing? Well, even if you think you are good at multitasking, all those constant email interruptions may be making you much less efficient and, even worse, causing stress. 
As hard as it sounds, taking an email vacation may be the best thing you can do for your productivity, focus, and peace of mind. In a new study by researchers from the University of California at Irvine and the U.S. Army, heart rate monitors were attached to computer users in a suburban office setting, while software sensors detected how often they switched windows. People who read email changed windows twice as often and were in a steady, high-alert state. Other research has shown that people with steady, high-alert heart rates have more cortisol, a hormone linked to stress. Stress on the job, in turn, has been linked to a variety of health problems. In contrast, people removed from email for five days experienced more natural, variable heart rates and reported feeling better able to do their jobs and stay on task, with fewer interruptions. The only downside to the experience was that the individuals without email reported feeling somewhat isolated. They also had the added health benefit of walking to someone's desk rather than emailing them. The researchers said it was initially difficult to find volunteers for the study to go several days without email, but eventually the volunteers loved having email vacations. And if you're not on email vacation, well, the Colorado calendar looks very green this week. First, there's the World Renewable Energy Forum being held through Thursday in Denver's Convention Center. It's exploring how renewable energy technologies address the world's economic, environmental, and security challenges. Featured speakers include Stephen Chu, Secretary of Energy. For more info, search on the web for World Renewable Energy Forum. Also, Governor John Hickenlooper has proclaimed May 17th Electric Vehicle Day in Colorado to raise awareness about ways to reduce air pollution, greenhouse gas emissions, and dependence on imported petroleum. So in Denver, there's a two-day electric vehicle showcase Wednesday and Thursday from 7.30 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. It'll be held near the Colorado Convention Center. And in Boulder, come see the latest in electric vehicle technology, cars, motorcycles, bicycles, and more on Thursday. The free event will be held in the west parking lot of the University of Colorado Boulder's Wolf Law Building from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. And then, 6.30 p.m., there'll be a free screening of Revenge of the Electric Car at the CU Visual Arts Complex Auditorium, room 1B20. For more info, you can do a net search on Boulder Electric Vehicle Day. When we arrive, sons and daughters will make our homes on the water. We'll build our walls, aluminum will fill our mouths with cinnamon now. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. More than a billion people in the world suffer from too many of them. About the same number suffer from too many. I'm talking about calories. They're vital to human health and indeed for our very survival. Too little or too much. A new book called Why Calories Count, From Science to Politics, delves into the many dimensions of calories, personal, scientific, and political. And it helps us demystify food labels, evaluate diet claims, and understand the complex politics of the food industry. Marion Nessel, a molecular biologist and professor at New York University in the Department of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health, is co-author of Why Calories Count, along with Malden Nessheim of Cornell University, also a nutritionist. Forbes magazine ranked Nessel number two on its list of the world's seven most powerful foodies, second only to Michelle Obama. Dr. Nessel's on the phone from New York to talk about the book and what's at stake in our diet. Uh, Marion, thank you so much. Welcome to the show. 
Oh, glad to be here. So first of all, congrats on being one of the most powerful. Number two, foodie. And what does that mean to you? Uh, it means incredible flattery since that was... <laughs> done by Michael Pollan, I certainly wouldn't put myself in the same category as Michelle Obama. But I think that my work has established a basis for a lot of what other people are doing, and I'm pretty excited about what they're doing. So I'm probably like many people who say, I really have no idea how many calories I take in and burn each day. So tell us, do, do calories really matter that much when it comes to overall health? Well, they matter a lot if it, when it comes to weight. Uh, if you are just interested in weight, the number of calories that you consume relative to the number that you expend in physical activity and everything you're doing um, absolutely determines your weight. If you're worried about your health, where your calories come from is extremely important. You can lose weight on a diet of candy bars. You don't eat too many of them. In fact, wasn't there, uh, wasn't there an experiment of a professor uh, sort of on a Twinkies diet? Yeah, he went on a Twinkies diet and lost weight. Yeah, of course he lost weight. He wasn't eating very many of them. <laughs> that would work. Um, but I don't think it would work for very long. And over time, that would have a, a big effect on health because you need your nutrients and you need your fiber and you need all those other things that are in food. And also, it doesn't sound very interesting. I'm one of these people who really loves to eat and the idea of just eating one thing all the time. <laughs> and it would be sad. I hear you there. So basically what you're saying sad? is not all calories are alike, right? Well, they are from the standpoint of thermodynamics, from the standpoint of health, they're not. Mm -hmm. So you have to think about the two aspects. If you only care about weight, then calories are all that matters. If you care about other things, everything else matters. And it seems that you put a lot of focus not so much on nutritional content itself, but the calories and weight. Like, How much import do you give nutrition in food? I mean, I know there's, well, like Michael Pollan says, what, what does he call it, the <laughs> nutrition industry complex, that there's overemphasis on that. But what, where, do you, where do you sit on that? Well, I'm a nutritionist, so he hurts, my, he hurts my feelings when he says things like that. I mean, I like to think that I'm really responsible about the kinds of things that I say. Um, but I think that for somebody who is concerned about weight, nutrients come along with food. And if you eat a healthy diet, you really don't have to worry about nutrients. They take care of themselves. The, you know, people li lived and existed for however many hundreds of thousands of years that it is since humans have existed without knowing what a vitamin was. We didn't really discover vitamins until 1920 or so. Mm. Um, and you, most people, were, if you, there are 40 or 50 of them, it's too much to worry about. <laughs> I'll you, say. Can't, you, know, you can't possibly worry about every single vitamin that's in food if you're eating a lot of fruits and vegetables and not eating too much junk food and balancing your calories you're probably doing just fine there's very little evidence of vitamin deficiency in this country and what about vitamin d i know that's not a big point in your book but that seems to be uh the latest i don't know if i'd say fad but is there well, much scientific not, evidence 
Well, it's not a vitamin, first of all. It's a hormone. Mm -hmm. And it needs to be treated and thought about as a hormone. And the minute you start thinking about that, um, then, or when I think about it, I worry a lot about the current fad for taking huge supplements. You can go out in the sun for 15 minutes a day, even in the winter and even in New York City or the northern part of the United States, and you will induce enough vitamin D in your skin to take care of your needs. Um, the biochemistry of it is complicated, and I don't really want to get into the whole business right. about the measurement of the intermediates, but I really recommend that people eat healthy diets and enjoy their food and just, you know, if you just put some vegetables into everything that you're eating, that will help a lot. <laughs> Except Twinkies. <laughs> Even Twinkies with a few vegetables in them would be a lot healthier. So it seems in the book, I love the, the tagline you say uh, as your message for eating healthy, just eat less, eat better, move more. Does it really come down to that? Well, it also I, the, you, you left out the the other one, which is get political. Right, I was going to get to that. <laughs> which is get political. Um, yeah, I think that if you're worried about weight, and these uh, enormous HBO specials are on this week, and what they boil down to is if you want to prevent weight gain, excessive weight gain, you have to eat less and eat better, and that means making sure that you eat a healthier diet and eat your veggies and that kind of thing. Uh, and you need to move more, although from the standpoint of weight, it's much more important to balance calories in than it is to balance calories out because most people can't exercise that much. Right. So the get political part of it has to do with let's change the food environment so we're not having food pushed at us all the time since so many of us have trouble resisting. And on the political front, so give us a taste of uh, where you say it's not just about personal choice, but we've been sold sort of a bill of goods by the food industry marketers. Well, I wouldn't say it's sold a bill of goods. I would say that the purpose of, food, of the food industry and of food companies is to sell more products, not less. If you're worried about your weight and have to eat less, that's going to be really, really bad for business. So food companies are in the business of trying to sell as much product as they can to as many people as they can, as often as they can, in as large quantities as they can. <laughs> and you and as, a, as an individual need to figure out some way to resist that, which, as it turns out, is very difficult for many people to do. So if you're going to get political, you want to change the environment so that eating more healthfully is the default. And it just becomes easier to have healthy foods around, to have them cheaper than the less healthful foods, uh, and in general to just make it easier for people to make more healthy choices. And then how much does genetics have to do with it? Obviously, some of us metabolize much faster than others. You could have the same diet, as you've shown in your book, all these studies. Um, the results are really varied. They do. And if you put a group of people on a diet where you feed them a thousand calories a day more than, you, than they need to maintain their existing weight, they're all going to gain weight. Everybody's going to gain weight. But some people are going to gain more than others, and that's where genetics comes in. Uh, but genetics hasn't changed since 1980, which is when rates of obesity in the United States started to rise. So we have to ask what has happened since 1980, and what has happened is that the food industry has 
made enormous attempts to sell food in ways that it never did before. And this is not just through advertising. It's also making food more available in places where food never was before. I went to a drugstore last night and was astonished to see that it now looks like a grocery store. And when did it become okay to eat in bookstores or libraries, for that matter? (laughs) Food Um, for thought, they say. Yeah, when food is there, people will buy it. They just will. And the research on the external cues of eating behavior shows over and over and over again that most people are completely unaware of triggers of of eating. Um, And we're all eating between meals and all day long and snacking and not paying very much attention to it. So I have to uh, distill it. So basically you're saying, so eat less, eat better, move more, and get political. Um, One quick thing, uh, where can people go to find out more information? You've got a great website. Uh, It's foodpolitics.com, and I post almost every day. You sure do. Very active. Well, thank you so much. That was Marian Nessel, co-author of the new book, Why Calories Count. From Science to Politics, you can find her on her blog, as she just said, foodpolitics.org. You are listening to How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. I'm Jim Pullen. This Friday, CU Boulder presents the annual Gold Lab Symposium. This year's theme is Tempus Fugit. That means time flies. And speakers this year will focus on why scientists and policymakers must remember that real people and real patients need innovations that lead to better health care right now. For a sneak preview of what better might mean, up next... How on Earth's Shelley Schlinder talks with Symposium founder Larry Gold about one of this year's speakers, Alan Jacobson. Jacobson has a cure for some, not all, but some children who have a deadly disease called muscular dystrophy. Here's Larry Gold. Alan Jacobson is from Worcester, Massachusetts. He's the chair of a department in the med school in the University of Massachusetts Medical School. And about 15 years ago, he found me at the last company, wherever I was, or the university, I don't remember. He said, I got an idea. And I said, that's so stupid, I can't believe it. And he said, no, it's a really great idea. I said, no, it's dumb. So then he met some friends of mine, and he raised a little bit of money. He started a company. And they have found a drug that has been in clinical trials for cystic fibrosis and for Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. Let's pause for just a moment and say what cystic fibrosis and Duchenne's muscular dystrophy are, besides the fact that they kill people by the time they're 30 very often. It's better than that for cystic fibrosis these days. For Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, it's still something like that. That's right. So Duchenne's muscular dystrophy is a particular gene called dystrophin. And boys, it's always boys, that have Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. It's a mutation in that gene so that the protein is not there. Boys are born, they look normal, and then after a couple of years, one to two years, the parents begin to get kind of nervous that something's going on. They stumble. They don't have as much development of movement as most kids do. That's exactly right. 
And then uh, they get diagnosed, and then they spend uh, a long time getting progressively worse, and there's not much you can do for them. And Pat Furlong, who was one of our speakers, the first year came back the second year and is coming again this year, lost her two sons to Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. When they were in their teens. Yes, and she didn't know that her first son had Duchenne's muscular dystrophy until the second son was born. They were close enough together. And there's an article about Pat in uh, The New Yorker called Mother Courage. It was one of the, you would cry. You cried when she was here two years ago. You'll cry again. And she's just my, one of my heroes. So Alan started a company to make drugs not for all people with Duchenne's muscular dystrophy or cystic fibrosis, because remember, that's in it too. So cystic fibrosis is a lung disease. There's a receptor which also has mutations in it, so it's a single gene, a deficiency, a single mutation that leads to the disease. And when people have that mutation, the disease is inexorable. And cystic fibrosis is where basically the lungs have trouble making the right kind of mucus to clear out germs and bugs, and so they eventually suffocate to death. Uh, yes, so, yes. I mean, people are better than that at the treatment, which is why people live so much longer. I, mean, I think these days, I mean, it's unusual to live into your mid-40s, but there are people that live to their even their 50s. I don't know what the world's record is, but a terrible debilitating disease, which ultimately is uh, if you're going to live, uh, you have to have a lung transplant eventually. You know, there aren't enough lungs for all the people with cystic fibrosis. So Alan's company, I just want to tell you this, I'm so excited about my friend Alan. He, first of all, he got money, and he started working on this thing with this guy, Stu, who was also uh, part of the company. And now there's this company called PTC Therapeutics, on the, you know, off the, in New Brunswick, New Jersey. And for 10% of the people with mutations in dystrophin, or 10%, not 100, but 10% of the people with mutations in the cystic fibrosis receptor, 10% of those people have a kind of mutation that can be suppressed by this drug. That is, the drug causes the machinery of making the proteins to make an error that corrects what's wrong with the protein. It is it's brilliant. Alan and Stu probably deserve a Nobel Prize for this. It's unbelievable work. Unbelievable work. So what he's going to talk about, the topic of his thing is something like from bench to bedside. The beautiful thing is that I was his best friend and I told him it wasn't going to work. <laughs> and, and I was completely wrong. Completely wrong. I love it. And he's a wonderful speaker, and he's hilariously funny, and you know he works on serious things, but he knows how to speak English. We always tell people, don't bury us in your, you know, arcane chemistry, and don't do that to us. Talk, talk English, you know, and, and he's good at it. They're all going to be good like that. And this is happening? Friday, May 18th, and Saturday, May 19th. Where does someone go to sign up? Should they just Google Gold Lab Symposium 2012? They can do that. And they can also, if they want to, they can write down the email address of my daughter. So they can go to the website, or they can just send my daughter, Carissa, cgold at somalogic.com, who manages this for us. We do it at the university. It's going to be in Munzinger Auditorium. We do it there every year. You can just send her an email and say, you want to come? And she'll sign you up, or she'll get you signed up. It's going to be fun. And if you can't make it to the symposium, you'll be posting it all online for free for people to listen to afterward. So I've gone to the website, this is www, 
www.goldlabcolorado.com is the website. And you can go there and you can see the talk, say, for example, for last year. And there's a person talking, and you can see the slides in the back. So I've looked at the ones from last year. Robert Duke last year, he's coming back this year. Robert Duke, he's the music teacher from Texas, and he's going to come back and moderate one of the sessions. He's the one, if you go to his website, you got to go look at that, because it's all about how you learn. And there's this beautiful boy playing the cello. And he made one of the great jokes of all time about how in college, if you look at the retention of information when you teach, there are two spikes in, in, in your average uh, student's life. There's a spike about the middle of the semester and a spike at the end where you learn a lot and then forget it within about an hour for your midterm exam and your final. <laughs> one of the funniest slides I've ever seen. So it, it will be fun, but it's about a serious thing because this is... This is our lives, and you know, if it's a sixth or a fifth or whatever it is of the GDP is spent on healthcare, and we're not getting much for it, and we ought to do better. Now, either we should spend less, or we should do better. I mean, I don't, I'm not, I'm not selling, but we ought to try. That's Larry Gold. Thanks to How on Earth Shelley Schlinder for that report. To find out more about this weekend symposium, do a Google on Gold Lab Symposium, 2012. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show was produced and engineered by Jim Pullen. Headline contributions by Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from the Decemberists and Elephant Revival. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can also subscribe to our podcast through iTunes. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Jim Pullen. And I'm Susan Moran. Thank you.